We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cass. Good morning. On any given night in Baltimore, about 1,600 people do not have housing, according to the Baltimore City point-in-time count. The tally seeks to count how many people are experiencing homelessness, but misses many, such as people sleeping in their cars or temporarily staying with relatives or friends. Providing a warm, safe place to sleep is one aspect of addressing homelessness. Providing health care and other resources is another. In a few minutes, we'll hear from the Franciscan Center, which serves meals to thousands of people each week. First, we'll talk with Kevin Lindemood, CEO of the nonprofit Health Care for the Homeless. Welcome back to On the Record, Kevin. Good morning, Sheila. Nice to be here. First, tell us generally what Health Care for the Homeless provides. Health Care for the Homeless uh, works to end homelessness, and we do that through a health care lens, providing access to primary health, primary medical care, mental health services, addiction treatment, dental care, outreach, and increasingly permanent supportive housing services to try to help the most vulnerable members of our community get housed and stay housed. Uh, we recognized long ago that housing is, in fact, health care, the best way to end homelessness and the best way to improve the health of those that we're serving. In a recent message you sent on social media, a video of about seven minutes, you laid out a challenging picture for health care for the homeless, although not completely gloomy. Describe the situation healthcare for the homeless is facing. Yes, as we come to the end of 2023, we're facing a situation I think that is similar to what other nonprofits and healthcare providers are facing post-pandemic. Uh, ours is fairly stark. We're facing a $5 million gap between our current rate of spending and projected revenue for 2024. Um, some of the reasons for this include pandemic-related funding that is going away, that won't be with us as we go into the next year, uh, the reality that our services are not structured in the way they need to be structured to more effectively serve more people. We've had to look very microscopically at where we're providing services to meet demand and where that demand might exist elsewhere and then retool our, our services. And then thirdly, we've uh, seen an incredible growth uh, during the pandemic and people that don't have health insurance. And it points to the broader systems failures of our society not recognizing things like healthcare and housing as fundamental human rights. And so as a nonprofit community health center, uh, we have to meet needs by balancing the very limited resources that are available. And so we, we found ourselves in a, in a situation of changing the way healthcare for the homeless is structured and that often involves both investing in some areas and, and scaling back in, in others. When we released the video, we had just communicated with our board and our staff and wanted to also speak to our supporters and the broader community about the challenges that we're facing and how we're working to create a more sustainable organization for clients, staff, and community. Well, tell me in more detail how you are planning to address this $5 million deficit. Uh, sure. Um, one way is by um, focusing more of our resources on healthcare delivery. And so that means scaling back in some areas on 
uh, events that we do on volunteer engagement, opening up more hours at sites like our Fallsway Clinic, uh, where demand is very high. That's your main clinic. That's our main clinic uh, right at uh, 421 Fallsway, right next to the Jones Falls Expressway. Mm -hmm. Um, Scaling back services in East and West Baltimore in clinics there that have been fully staffed, but they're seeing about half the volume they should be seeing. So we're reassigning some of those staff wherever we can uh, to other locations like Fallsway where demand is high. We have a small program called a convalescent care program. It just hasn't been able to operate sustainably for a range of reasons. So we're scaling back that program and working to better provide on-site services at local shelters where people need intensive services and, and deliver resources in a, in a more sustainable way. Um, and for an organization like ours, 75% of our budget is our people. Uh, we can't achieve that level without some reductions in force. So, so tell me about that. We're looking at a 15% reduction in our workforce. Um, That's how many people? Much of that, about 40 positions, and much of that gap we've been able to close by um, consolidating people into, into other open positions, um, having people that used to work in one location instead work in another location, for example, and eliminate that, that previous position. Um, so when it, when it came down to it at the very end, uh, a relative handful of individuals, still, still challenging for any organization to, for me to stand in front of staff and say, okay, there are people in our community that we have known and worked with that aren't going to be with us as we go into next year, right? And so we tried, we tried to make that as small as possible. A- exactly. It's about six positions. Um, and then we were able to eliminate about 22 open positions and then consolidate others. Um, so we're, we're scaling back our workforce from a, a height of about 270 to about 230 if, if fully staffed. But at the same time, you're trying to hire. It's, it's interesting, right, that when, when trying to um, ensure a sustainable organization, uh, you also have to focus on the staff members that are uh, delivering services that are in some way reimbursable. And so one of the challenges that we've faced, and I, I bet that every organization that's listening right now, especially nonprofit organizations, will agree that staffing, especially in healthcare spaces, has been a tremendous, tremendous challenge. So we've not been able to hire things like dental assistants, medical assistants, uh, direct service staff, uh, nurse practitioners, for example. And so in the month of December, uh, we will actually be announcing um, hiring bonuses for certain staff positions uh, in order to uh, fill those positions that allow us to actually serve people and serve uh, pro- uh, serve a higher volume of individuals than we've been able to provide at the moment. Um, it gets somewhat complicated because we're we're serving people that have insurance like Medicaid and Medicare. We're also serving people who are completely uninsured, um, and we leverage a range of grant funding in order to in order to do that. And so, figuring out how to balance the organization has been looking at looking at various funding sources, uh, looking at areas and and services that we can, in fact, bill for, uh, trying to keep our doors open as wide as possible to those who need our care, regardless of insurance status, uh, but trying to 
find a, a sustainable balance so that the organization is not spending more than it's bringing in. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with Kevin Lindemood, CEO of Healthcare for the Homeless. We're talking about challenges facing the organization and how they are addressing them. So when you have made these moves you described, will you be providing health care to as many people as you have been? Um, we believe that we, in fact, will. We've seen 11,000 different people so far this year. Uh, we're advancing a plan that has us actually seeing more individuals by increasing the number of appointments that are available in locations uh, that have very high volume and by doing more of going into the community. We're increasing the hours on our mobile clinic, for example, um, from about uh, two and a half days a week to four and a half days a week. Um, one of the ironic things, perhaps, just as uh, nonprofit organizations are facing the loss of pandemic-related resources, um, dollars are also ending for individuals and families that helped um, people prevent homelessness during the pandemic. Uh, the cost of housing has continued to increase and so we fear that just as organizations are struggling with replacing resources that they were using to meet unmet human need, unmet human need is also increasing um, as individuals and families are struggling uh, with rising costs uh, and fewer resources to help meet their needs. Well, as you mentioned, you, you are more involved in providing permanent housing for people. How are you doing that? Um, we, we are. If, if there was anything that the pandemic did, it was to underscore the reality that housing is a human right. And our organization during that period um, realized that we should not just be providing intensive services to help people get and stay housed. We needed to figure out how to bring more housing units online. Uh, and so we created a wholly owned nonprofit subsidiary called HCH Real Estate Co. And in partnership with Episcopal Housing Corporation in, in Baltimore, uh, we built a 70-unit apartment building in the Oliver community. Uh, half of those units, 35 of them, uh, are available for families and individuals exiting homelessness. And the other 50%, uh, the other 35, are highly affordable uh, for those earning 50% of area median income or less. We're in the process now of planning a future project that we plan to apply for by the end of this year. Um, housing, as I said, is very much health care. <laughs> And for an organization that provides the range of services that we provide, it's, it's not uncommon uh, that challenges in one area are also matched by opportunities and progress in, in others. And so just as listeners are hearing about the financial challenges on the healthcare side of our work and how we're trying to uh, balance and stabilize, um, you're also likely to hear and read in the coming weeks about um, exciting opportunities on the housing development side. How is your staff holding up? Our staff is, um, as you might imagine, initially um, uh, very, very shocked. 
we're transparent about our financial statements, and they had seen throughout the year that we were operating at a loss and and trying to ensure that we were uh, turning that around. Uh, and so some, I think, uh, weren't terribly surprised. Uh, they they uh, appreciated the steps that are being taken to to right the ship, if you will. Um, uh, others, though, I think very focused on meeting unmet need, um, were were a bit taken aback by the by the news and by the size of that gap. Um, that said, as the days have gone on since that announcement uh, a week and a half, two weeks ago, um, probably the most common response I've heard from staff is, um, we've got this. Uh, People will walk into my office, stop me in the elevator, stop me in the hallway, and say, um, we have got this. Uh, we're, We're going to be here for those experiencing homelessness because our mission as an organization is simply too important for us not to be. Um, and as we have released messaging to the community, uh, more and more people have been coming to our website and leaving messages for staff. And a lot of those messages are coming from former Healthcare for the Homeless staff that are offering words of encouragement uh, really rooted in the importance of our work and mission. And so staff are very much um, feeling that their work is validated and important and uh, being invested in uh, by the community that, that calls us into being. Um, so I, I, I think our staff is um, uh, very optimistic as it looks toward 2024, um, ensuring that we are uh, operating sustainably uh, and committed to the goal of um, delivering comprehensive quality healthcare services and making homelessness rare and brief. Thanks for telling us about it. Thank you for having me. And good luck with his right-sizing. Kevin Lindemood is CEO of Healthcare for the Homeless. We've been talking about what the organization is doing to shore up staff and budgets and how they're moving forward. At the On the Record page at WIPR.org, we have links to more information about how to support Healthcare for the Homeless, join its team, or reach out to a staff member. Short break on the record. When we're back, the Franciscan Center responded to a huge spike in need during the pandemic. How are they faring now? I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. We're getting updates today from two Baltimore organizations with long histories of assisting those in need of food, shelter, health care, and other basics. We just heard from the CEO of Healthcare for the Homeless about how they're addressing shortages in staff and funding. Now joining us is Jeff Griffin, Executive Director of the Franciscan Center. Welcome to On the Record, Jeff. Thank you for having me. The center is just around the corner from WIPR Studios in the Old Goucher neighborhood. What happens there? What do you provide? Well, so 
this is our 55th year of being basically the one of the largest uh, soup kitchens in Maryland, but we're the only ones who cook um, our, nearly all of our meals from scratch. So, uh, so an example, on any given day here in December, we'll serve anywhere between four and 600 individuals. But we will also deliver meals to nine homeless encampments, and we are also delivering meals to the winter shelter system for Baltimore City as well. Not to mention we have social workers, and they're meeting with people, 20 to 40 uh, individuals um, every day. So we're, we're busy. The pandemic changed how you deliver meals. Talk about that. Well, it, it, it did. So for all these years, we, we welcomed everyone into our space in order to serve a nice hot meal. The pandemic changed instantly, even before the governor issued his, uh, his mandate to keep as many people inside. We knew a couple days in advance that we were going to have to start making deliveries, which is brand new concept for us. We had a wonderful friend of ours who become an even bigger friend of ours named Doc Cheatham, who is in West Baltimore, and he was advocating, saying that uh, they didn't have food resources in the Matthew Henson community. So we knew on Monday, when, there, when everyone else was going to be staying at home, we d- we knew we were going to stay open, and now we're going to be delivering. And that day, we delivered 50 meals to uh, the Matthew Henson Community Association. And you had not delivered meals before. Ever. So the first day was 50 meals. And then the next day was 100 meals. And then by Wednesday, we were doing 200 meals a day for the next four weeks for Matthew Henson. Okay. And then broaden that out. Yes. During the pandemic, what we, else? We, as, as more people became aware that we were staying open, we started receiving more and more phone calls. We, our relationships started, started with the city of Baltimore. We became a primary resource for their homeless services department. We also uh, became a resource for their aging uh, department. And we started receiving requests to make uh, deliveries not only to senior homes, but also to individuals because at the time, Meals on Wheels was, was at capacity and we became their their backup. And in fact, we, beca- we became so busy that the governor uh, Hogan assigned uh, a National Guard unit to us for eight weeks. Delivering meals? Helping helping us to pick up the resources, ingredients from the Maryland Food Bank, and then helping us to create the meals because we were doing 25,000 meals a week at the height of um, COVID for us, and then making deliveries uh, as well. And we were delivering to families in eight different counties. So are you still delivering meals in those Numbers? No. So right now we are delivering meals only to the homeless encampments um, a, a, as well as to the winter shelter. So we cut back when other nonprofits opened back up. Um, we, we didn't have the capacity um, or the funding to continue at that level because it was unsustainable. That's Jeff Griffin, executive director of the Franciscan Center. On the record on WYPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about what the center provides and how they're addressing a sustained increase in need. And let me ask you about that. What is the need now? We're back to pre-pandemic levels. So we're serving uh, anywhere between 400, 400 and 600 meals at our center every day. And so that usually typically means by the end of the month, we're closer to 500 to 550 meals per day because of our, um, our neighbors, uh, if they're receiving any kind of 
um, supplementary income from federal resources that usually runs out by the end of the month. And so we see that our numbers uptick drastically. We are also delivering 150 meals every day to the homeless encampments, nine of them. And then uh, this week, we're on pace to deliver 356 meals per day to the winter shelter system as well. You mentioned in passing the Maryland Food Bank. Wh- where else does your food come from, the, fo- the food that goes into these meals? So we are blessed to have a lot of different partners. Uh, we serve scratch food only because we have partnerships with farms. One of our major partners is First Fruits Farm up in northern Baltimore County. They are a wonderful organization that's been around about 30 years, and they, uh, the owner has about 180 to 200 acres, and everything he grows, he gives away. Wow. And, and so we get at least once a week, if not twice a week, we get wonderful produce. Uh, we also have our own farm in Howard County. Um, it's in Ellicott City at the Shrine of St. Anthony, and that was a three-acre farm that was created just for our center. And so just this morning, we've received uh, fresh produce, even though it's December. So we've received sweet potatoes. We've received uh, uh, more lettuce. We've received um, tomatoes, regular potatoes. And so here we are able to serve farm to table, but for mass production. The Franciscan Center um, has a culinary training program, too. Tell us about that. We do. So it wasn't like we were looking necessarily for this at this moment, but we were one of the larger larger uh, hubs for the farmers. It's a federal program they started during COVID, the Farmers to Families program. And we were receiving about 200 to 225 boxes each week than we were supposed to hand out to our neighbors and our community. But by the second, third week, we started seeing our, our guests only take certain things from the boxes, and they left other things. And so we, we have conversations. That's, that's what we're, we're very good at. And it became very clear that our guests and clients, um, they didn't necessarily have the skills or, and or the tools to use everything in the box. And to cook it at home. To cook at home. Yeah, so you're talking about lots of fresh produce, but if you don't know what certain produce are or if you don't um, have the skills to cook and then you combine that possibly with not having a stove or you don't have pots and pans or you don't have uh, other utensils, then it becomes extremely hard to do that. And so we started up a culinary school um, in March of 2001, started with five students, and it, it was a 12-week class. All five graduated, and four out of five are currently still employed. Um, and it's now we are now in our eighth class, and we have anywhere between 12 and 14 students. And we're help. Not only are we able to help them, teach them the skills, and help them with the credentials to get a job, but I'm happy to report that. All of them are saying they cook more often, and they also cook for their family as well. And so as someone who had tough choices growing up for when it comes to food, hearing how and the joy of, of, of hearing someone cook, be, being able to have the skills to cook for their own family is very gratifying. There's a big renovation underway at the center. What what are those plans? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the original building was built in 1880. The Sisters of St. Francis came over from England, and their first 
mission was to create an orphanage uh, for African-American youth. And the old building where my office is was, uh, was dedicated to young girls from newborn through 18. And then in the 50s, the state did away with orphanages. So the next biggest need was a school for special needs. So our building, ha- our original building hasn't been updated since the 70s. So there was a tremendous need for that. And then the, the, the second part that was built about 23 years ago, let's just say COVID really showed where we were lacking in technology and in resources. And so we knew we needed to undertake a capital campaign. So we're, we're in the midst, the final stages of a basically a $3.5 million capital campaign. And we're going to be uh, adding a client choice pantry. It's like I'm going to the grocery store. It's, it's like you're going to the grocery store. We're also developing a rather wonderful computer lab. So many of our guests who come, uh, they don't have access to the internet. Either they don't own a computer or they don't have Wi-Fi. Or, so we want to be a resource uh, for that. We're having dedicated space for our social workers. We need to add more offices on our second floor so we can have the ability to have more conversations with individuals and families. And then our third floor, which used to be all offices, we're actually are creating that to be a more open space so that we can invite our nonprofit partners to come in and uh, have meetings with us, maybe have an office or a table there, and so that we can work together to solve some of the problems that are happening, challenges that are happening in the city. A lot going on. Thanks for telling us about it. Thank you for asking. Jeff Griffin is executive director of the Franciscan Center. We've been talking about their renovation plans and how they succeed in serving thousands of healthy meals each month. More information at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. Tomorrow.